If you could, um, please turn as you uh, to Matthew, Matthew 28, verse um, uh, 18. Uh, Pastor Brent last week uh, uh, preached out of this verse, and he did an excellent job explaining what it means to make disciples. Make disciples. This is the Great Commission, and he focused on that. I'm going to focus today on, on three words after that, of all nations. Um, I'm taking a lot of my sermon from this book. I highly recommend it. John Piper, it's a, um, one of his uh, um, most well-known books called Let the Nations Be Glad. Um, and before I even get started, I wanted to want to say just right off the bat that I agree with Pastor Brent 100% that the Great Commission is more than just uh, uh, missions. We often hear the Great Commission spoken um, at talking about missions, and that's what the sermon is going to be today, but it's more than that. We are called to evangelize our community. We are called to make disciples here in Tehachapi. So I want to start off by saying that I agree with that 100%. I'm not uh, diminishing that whatsoever today, Um, so much so that we're starting a discipleship class, and one of the reasons we're preaching through this Great Commission is because um, we want, as we go in the future, making disciples a, a priority here at Country Oaks. Not that it hasn't been, but we want to focus in on that. And so we're starting a discipleship class. If you want to sign up, the sign-up's over here after church. Um, but as we move forward, we also want to make a priority missions and make missions a focus of our, of our church. Um, Again, it has been a focus in our church in the past, but we want to narrow that focus a little bit. And so um, uh, we decided to preach on making disciples and of all nations these last two Sundays. And then next Sunday, I think next Sunday, we're jumping into Luke. So we'll be going verse by verse through the book of Luke, um, which I am excited for. Uh, But we're leading the church this way, not out of a preference. And the elders, the the pastors aren't, aren't... leading the church this way because we prefer to see the church go this way. That's true, but we're leading more out of a conviction that missions and disciple make, discipleship making um, aren't just ministries, ministries we prefer, but the Bible, it's the mission of the church, and the Bible makes that very clear. And so today I'm going to focus on of all nations, and I want to answer a question. Is the missionary mandate of the Bible— a command to reach as many individuals as possible, or a command to reach the nations of the world as the Bible defa- defines nations. There's huge implica- implications on how you answer that question, especially when it comes to directing a church. And so I want to look at three things. First, I want to look at the Great Commission, and I want to create a, an argument, a thesis for the sermon And then from there, I want to look at the Old Testament and New Testament to see if it supports that argument. So let's start with the Great Commission. In Matthew uh, chapter 28, verse 18, it says this. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and in earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I want to start by saying the phrase, of all nations, does not have to be in the Great Commission for the Great Commission to make sense. It could be, go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them um, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. 
So we need to ask ourselves the question, why is the phrase pantaita ethne of all nations in there? Pantaita ethne is the Greek. Does any word in there sound familiar? Ethne. It's a plural form of ethnos, which is the, we get the English word ethnic from. Ethne um, is translated in most of your translations, nations, which is an appropriate translation, but maybe not the best understanding. Ethne really communicates people groups. People groups. What's, so what's the difference? America is a nation, but within America, there's hundreds of people groups. A biblical definition, I'm going to ask you guys just to, to uh, trust me on this. It's defined in this book, um, and we can talk about this uh, uh, later, but I, I, I do think a biblical definition of ethne, people groups, is an ethnic group that shares a common language as well as history, customs, family, and or clan identities. It's, it's, it's arbitrary somewhat, but with that definition, I think we can focus in and picture what is a people group for the most part. When you hear the word nations in the Bible— most of the time, I want you to just think people groups. That's usually the idea that's trying to get across. So why did Jesus add the phrase, of all nations, or people groups? I'm going to argue this morning that Jesus added the phrase, pantai te, uh, te ethne, because the Great Commission has a missionary uh, mandate to reach the ethne, the people groups of the world. Therefore, the task of the church in regards to mission is not merely to win as many individual souls as possible, but rather to win individuals from all the people groups of the world. In other words, God's call for the church cannot be defined in terms of maximizing the total number of individuals saved. Rather, God's will for missions is that every people group be reached with the testimony of Christ. It's, it's why we don't take our whole budget for missions and, and, and try to invest it in outreach here in Tehachapi, Bakersfield, or Mojave. If we did that, there might be a chance that we could reach more people number, numbers-wise and probably maximize the total number of people saved. But we have a conviction here that evangelizing our churches, or evangelizing our community is separate from missions. Evangelizing our culture alone does not accomplish the Great Commission. If we as a church are amazing, in other words, at, at evangelizing and discipleship, we do a great job at that, and, and I think we do a good job, but if we did a, just an, an amazing job at that here in Tehachapi, but we're not actively reaching the nations... I'm going to argue that we would be a disobedient church. We are called by the Great Commission to make disciples of other people groups where the church is either weak or non-existent. And a side note, this is one of the reasons in the history of Country Oaks, it used to be that outreach and missions were under the same line item in the budget and ministries, but we have separated those two because we believe that outreach... Um, is reaching our community, and missions is reaching foreign people groups. And they're two, two related but distinct things. And we're called to make reaching foreign people groups a priority. 
And this includes not just the church at whole. This includes not just the leadership, but everyone, individual members of the church to make missions a priority. So why did Jesus add Pante ta ethne to the Great Commission? Well, let's start by looking at another place Jesus uses that phrase. Pante ta ethne. Uh, Luke 24, verse 44. If you could turn there real quick. I think this is a very interesting little passage here. Luke 24, verse 44, says this. Then he said to them, These are my words that I have spoken to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That's the whole Testament. Everything in the Old Testament that's written about me must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds, this is the disciples, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, which the New Testament hasn't been written yet, so this is the Old Testament. And said to them, thus it is written, this is what the Old Testament says, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, Ponte te ethne, beginning from Jerusalem. I mean, this is significant. Jesus is saying a major theme of the Old Testament is reaching the ethne, reaching the nations. Really? I mean, think about that. Is reaching the nations a major theme of the Old Testament? Could you say that confidently? I think most people would say no. It seems that the Old Testament's only about one nation, Israel. And any other nation in the Old Testament that seems to be mentioned is, is God's wrath being poured out on the nation or getting wiped off the face of the earth. So is missions reaching the nations a, a major theme of the Old Testament? Well, I want to look at that and try to answer that question today. Um, although we could start before Genesis 12, why don't you turn to Genesis 12 right now? And we're going to be flying through the scriptures today. If you want to, I want you to see this in the scriptures, but I don't want you to be, if you want to just listen to, listen to me reading the scripture, that's fine. Um, but starting in Genesis 12, verse 1, it says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. We know he's talking about Israel, right? He's going to make Abram into a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." I am going to bless you, God says, so that in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. I'm going to bless you so that you will be a blessing, Abram. You ever wondered why God chose Israel? Chose Abraham? Pastor Brent preached on election a few weeks ago from Malachi where God says, Israel asked God, how have you loved us? And, And God responds as, I have loved Jacob, whose name is Israel, saying, I have chosen you. I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. God's answer is, I have chosen you, Israel. Well, why? Why did God elect Israel? Why did God elect Abram of all the people on the earth? Why did God choose Israel? 
choose to bless Israel, it says here that all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That Israel would be a blessing. And this is repeated in in Psalms uh, chapter 67, if you want to turn there. It starts off with a familiar frame. Pastor Brent actually quoted it at the end of his sermon last week. It says this in Psalms 67 verse 1. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Why? It's Israel saying this, the Old Testament. Make your, your face shine upon us, Lord. Be gracious to us, Lord. Bless us, Lord. Why? Why bless us? So Israel could just be blessed? No, verse 2. That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Israel was God's chosen people, blessed by God, that God's way may be known on earth, his saving power among all nations. Jesus said in the Gospel of Luke that the major theme of one of the major themes of the Old Testament is that that repentance and forgiveness of sins, that salvation would be proclaimed in his name to all nations, pantaita ethne. And that agrees with Psalm 67. On a side note, and I'm going to go on a rabbit trail. I'm forewarning you. This is a long rabbit trail. We'll be back in, into the promise to Abraham and, and, and Israel in a second. But I was reading the Psalms as I was getting ready for this sermon, and it just hit me. Just about everywhere Christianity has flourished within a society, prosperity and earthly blessings have followed. Comfort, freedom, prosperity, and wealth. And let me be clear, Psalm 67 is not about earthly blessing. It says, may your faith shine upon us. And that is spiritual blessings, to have a relationship with God where we can see him face to face and not be fearful, not be in dread. That is spiritual blessings. Ultimate joy is found in a relationship with God, but, and it's, more, it's infinitely more important than, than earthly blessings. But let's just think about earthly blessings for a second. We live in the most blessed nation that has ever existed in human history. Think about that. All of human history. We live in the most blessed nation that has ever existed in human history. And there's a reason why. America was built upon a Christian worldview. And I want to ask yourself to just be honest. And this might not attain to all of you, I want you to just check your heart. I hear often from conservative Christians, not a heart for the nations, but almost a disdain for the nations. Those, those people are hopeless. Why can't they get their act together? We should just nuke them and get rid of them. Or I can't wait for God to come back to get rid of them. Listen, you know why Afghanistan is such a mess? You, want, you know why North Korea is such a mess? It's countries full of the spiritually dead. Just like we were before we heard the gospel. Before God regenerated. Before God gave us life. Before God made us his. And because these nations are spiritually dead... They're hopeless without the gospel. It's their only hope. 
God didn't bless us. He didn't bless your family. He didn't bless our church so we could ignore the nations. On a personal level, just me, when I heard the refugees a few years ago, when it was such a a big deal in the news, that these refugees were flooding Western countries, to my shame, my first thoughts were, I hope they don't come to America. I hope they don't end up in Tehachapi. Let me be clear, this is not a political speech. Government needs to do what it needs to do. But the church has a different set of priorities. I was talking to one of our missionaries that, that lives in the Middle East about the refugees flooding Western countries. And his country, the refugees have to go through to get to the Western countries. And some of them are held up there, not able to, to, to get jobs, living off their life savings, trying to get to Western countries to flee, flee the persecution and war that's happening from their country. And you know what he told me? This just hit me. His church grew like crazy when that happened. He has a church in the Middle East, and it like tripled in size. Because a large number of these refugees are Christians fleeing persecution. He said one man was a Christian he met that he he befriended a Christian in Iraq for 30 years. Look, I know the majority of them aren't Christians, these refugees that were coming through, but, but God didn't bless our nation, bless our church, bless our family so we could just be blessed. He blessed us so we could be a blessing. And I know it seems hopeless. And you read the news and it seems hopeless. It's because it is hopeless. It's impossible. You realize the Great Commission is an impossible mission without God. Jesus said in Mark 10, 23, and Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? If Jesus was here today, he could easily say, how difficult is it for people of Assyria to enter into the kingdom of God? How difficult is it for people of Iran to enter into the people or enter into the kingdom of God? How difficult is it for people in Saudi Arabia to enter into the kingdom of God, of India, of China, of Japan? How difficult? And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. How difficult is it for anyone to be saved? It's not difficult, it's impossible. He says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it's impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Everyone's salvation's a miracle. If you're saved in here, you're a walking miracle. God has raised you from death to life. That is a miracle. Therefore, how hard is it to reach a Muslim that has grown up in Afghanistan? It's not hard. It's impossible. Thankfully, we worship a God who accomplishes the impossible. And Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything to follow you. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or fathers or children or land for my sake and for the gospel. This is our missionaries that have left everything for the sake of the gospel and Jesus who will not receive a a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and, and, and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and land 
with persecution, and, the, and in the age to come, eternal life. You want to do something about the nations? Help support our missionaries. Pray for our missionaries. Let's be a church that makes missions a priority. Let's be a church that supports our missionaries well. Look, if you can't go, let's send. And let's send well. That's my rabbit trail. Let's get back to Abraham. Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all the nations. Now, I want you to listen to the heart of the the psalmist that's writing here. And this is inspired by God. And this is in the Old Testament. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and seen for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Right? God blessed Abraham so that he could be a blessing to the nations. Turn to Genesis 17, back to Genesis. Genesis 17, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared uh, to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of Israel. Get anyone there? No, you should be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Look, he was, he was the physical father of a multitude of nations. Ishmael and Isaac became nations. But this is more talking about a spiritual father of a multitude of nations. Paul makes this clear in the New Testament. God is saying there will be people saved from a multitude of nations, and they'll be your spiritual children. And if you're not Jewish in this, this room this morning, that's us. That's us. And this promise is repeated four times in Genesis. Genesis 18, 18. See that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Genesis twenty two eighteen, And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Genesis 26, 4. I will multiply your offsprings as the stars of heaven and I will give your offsprings all these lands and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis 28, 14. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. How closely is the Abrahamic covenant related to the Great Commission? Well, Matthew 18, or Matthew 28, 19 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, pantai ethne, in the Septuagint. What's the Septuagint? The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Old Testament is written in Hebrew. Uh, um, Hebrew scholars before Christ translated that Hebrew into Greek. 
in the Septuagint, three out of those four promises repeated, Hebrew scholars use the Greek phrase, pantaita ethne, all the nations. And in you, and, and in your offspring, all the nations, pantate ethne, of the earth shall be blessed. Word for word, the same as the Great Commission. Therefore, the, the Abrahamic promise is a foundation to the Great Commission. God would bless Abraham so that he would be a blessing to all the nations, all the people groups, by the gospel of Christ going out to all the nations one day. Spiritual children being made. And from here, the Old Testament is just full of related verses to this promise. Over 120 verses. I was going to read some of the Psalms, but there's just too many. So Psalms 47, clap your hands, all peoples. Psalms 66, bless our God, all peoples. Psalm 72, may people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Psalms 105, oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Psalms 117, praise the Lord, all nations. Exalt him, all peoples. It it goes on. The emphasis is God's name being praised among the nations. This will only happen if forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to all the nations, which is what Jesus said is the major theme of the Old Testament. I don't have time to cover everything this morning, but there's huge portions of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel dedicated to the nations. Almost every minor prophet has portions dedicated to the nations. The book of Daniel is written in Aramaic. Why? It's the common language of the nations at that time. So when people read Daniel seven thirteen through 14, which says, I saw in the night vision, and behold, the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. It wasn't just in Hebrew. It was the nations that could read it. People from, from Assyria, from Babylon, all those people could read it. There comes one like a son of man. Jesus called himself 98% of the time. He called himself the son of man, referring to this prophecy. There came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, and he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages would serve him. What's crazy about this is the the wise men, the magi that came to Jesus' birth were probably Persians influenced by Daniel's teachings. Probably read this, this portion of scripture. There's even whole books dedicated to pagan nations in the Old Testament. Nahum, Jonah, it's really a rebuke on Israel for not being a blessing to the other nations. I love what Piper says in in this book. He says, "The, The missionary implications of Jonah are not merely that God is more ready to be merciful to the nations than his people are, but also that Jesus identifies him as something greater than Jonah. He is greater not only because his resurrection is greater than surviving a fish's belly, but also because he stands in harmony with the mercy of God and extends it now to all the nations unlike Jonah. Jesus is the greater Jonah. And we are called as a church to take his message to the ends of the earth, to all the nations. Israel was called to be a blessing to to the nations, and ultimately this is fulfilled in Jesus, the true and better Jonah, the true and better Israel, a blessing to all the nations. 
So the emphasis of reaching the nations is seen in the Old Testament, and of course it's more clearly seen in the New Testament. So I want to look at the New Testament now, and I want to answer this question. Is there a missionary mandate that is more than just evangelism, more than just evangelizing our culture in the New Testament? I'm going to spend most of my time in Acts, and I'm going to go through this quickly. Because Acts is a historical narrative. It's a, it's a historical narrative of the outworking of the Great Commission. The Great Commission is giving, and, and God is directing the church in Acts on how the Great Commission should be accomplished. And I want to look at Acts, start in Acts 2, verse 42. This is a narrative of the first church, a description of the, the first church. It was a Baptist church. What? They baptize people. <laughs> they call it First Baptist. They're the only church that could really have that name. First Baptist of the world. Context is Jesus has ascended. He's established a church. He's given the Holy Spirit. Uh, the apostles have preached. Peter has preached. And 3,000 are saved. It's not just a Baptist church. It's a mega church. It's in a beautiful church. And people see it as just a model of a healthy church. It's a devoted church, a God-focused church, a fellowshipping church, and an outreaching church. It's a devoted church, verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings, which was scripture. That's what we're called to do, devote ourselves to the apostles' teachings. It's before they wrote it down, but it's scripture. They devoted themselves to scripture, to the apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. It was a God-focused church, verse 43. And awe came upon every soul, and, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. This church, awe came upon every soul and what God was doing. It was a fellowshipping church, verse 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possession and belongings to distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. If anyone had need, people were selling their stuff to give to them. Verse 46, and day by day attending the temple together and breaking of bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. They came together day by day with glad and generous hearts. And it was an outreaching church. It was an evangelistic church. They evangelized. Verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day all that, uh, um, who, or those who were being saved. Day by day people were being saved. And you follow the number. The church started with a few hundred people. Peter preached 3,000. A few days later, it seems like 5,000. And you keep going, it just gets to the point where you can't even count how many people are in this church. They're growing like crazy. If our church was growing like that, just boom, boom. It's like we're running out of people in Tehachapi because they're all going to our church. You would say that's a healthy church. You have to ask a question, though, because you get to Acts 7, and heavy persecution hits. You want to ask, why, God, would you let this beautiful church face such heavy persecution? Get to Acts 7, you see the death of Stephen. He's a leader of this church. An amazing man, an evangelist, a, a man full of grace and power, full of wisdom, full of the Holy Spirit. He even says his face was like the face of an angel. In Acts 7, he gets stoned to death. The church has to be asking, why, God? Why would you let this happen? And Acts 8, 3 says, but Paul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. He grabbed moms and dads and threw them into prison. 
Why would you let this happen, God? Why bring such harsh persecution to, to this church? Why are you allowing this, God? Here's my answer. This is what I think. God was disciplining this church. For how awesome this church was, it was a disobedient church. They neglected Jesus' main command. Take the gospel to the nations. They did outreach. They evangelized. But they didn't leave Jerusalem. They didn't make reaching the nations a priority. And Jesus made it clear in Acts 1.8, it says this, But you will receive the power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses starting in Jerusalem. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And then in Judea and Samaria, outside of Jerusalem, and then to the ends of the earth. The first church was called to reach the nations, but they stayed in Jerusalem. They were doing outreach. People were being saved. And again, I'm not saying we're not called to do outreach. We're called to do outreach. But we're also called to reach the nations. They were reaching Jerusalem, but the thrust of Jesus' command, the thrust of the Great Commissions is not numbers. It's reaching the nations. Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and the Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And look at Acts Chapter 8, verse 4, right after it says Paul was ravaging the church. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. You don't want to go to Judea and Samaria? You're going. You're going. The gospel will be preached there. For how awesome this first church was, they didn't want to cross cultural boundaries. It was too hard. Maybe. It was too dangerous. The Gentiles are just too lost. They're not going to accept the Gospels anyways. Those Samaritans, those Romans. There's no hope for them. Ask the question, does that sound familiar? If you think I'm reading too much into this, look at Acts 11, verse 19. They get scattered... Now those who were scattered because of persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. The Gentiles, they're too far. Why would I even talk with them? I mean, think of the hatred in that action. Right? You deserve hell, you deserve hell, you deserve hell. Oh, a Jew, let's give him the gospel. The first church, for how beautiful it was, was racist. I mean, there were Jews, and we know the Jews had a hatred towards Samaria, and we know the Jews had a a disdain and a hatred towards the, the, the Greeks. And this carried over into the first church. I want you to think about this, too. They figured it out. God gently showed them through Acts that the gospel is supposed to go to the nations. They figured it out. And the majority of our ancestors, I'm, I'm guessing in here, aren't Samaritans, right? The Samaritans were bad, but they're half-Jews. Worse than them were the Greeks, the Romans, right? Most of our ancestors were the barbarians. Thankfully, the church figured it out and sent missionaries throughout this dangerous peoples. 
made disciples of our ancestors. And because of this, the gospel penetrated the Roman people. It penetrated the barbarian people and completely changed those cultures. The first church was amazing, but disobedient. They should have known better, too. They should have known better, too. God was, was showing them. Have you ever wondered what the significance of speaking in tongues is? And so many people miss this because they read into Scripture instead of letting Scripture tell us what, what it means. We take our modern concept of speaking in tongues and we read it into the text, the, the, uh, our modern understanding of speaking in tongues, instead of letting Scripture clearly tell us what is going on. Let me just reread... Um, Luke 24, and then we're going to go to Acts 2. It says, Luke 24, verse 25. This is where we started. Then, then he, being Jesus, opened their mind to understand the scripture. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day raise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed um, in his name to all nations. There's Pantai Ta Ethne. Beginning from Jerusalem, it's going to start in Jerusalem and it's going to go to all nations. You are my witnesses of these things. So start in Jerusalem and expand to the nations. But before that happens, verse 49, and behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, the Holy Spirit. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Stay in the city until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Stay in Jerusalem until then. Once he comes, you're going to take the gospel to, to Panti, Tai, Ethne, all the nations. You get to Acts 1.8, he repeats it. But you'll be received power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, to all nations. We find out that right there is the, the, the thematic statement of Acts. That's the outline of Acts. It starts in Jerusalem. It goes to Judea and Samaria, and then Paul takes it to the ends of the earth. That's the outline right there. Acts is an outworking of the Great Commission. And we get to Acts 2.1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, there were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it, was fill and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit had given them other utterances. That word tongues in Greek is um, galases. Galases. It can be, it literally means tongue or tongues, but it can be translated language or languages. And if you reread verse 4, Translating Galases to languages, it says this, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterances. Well, why? Why would this be significant? Well, verse 5. Now there were um, dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devoted men from every nation. And we get Ponte Ethne again. Jewish people from every nation that spoke every language were in Jerusalem for Pentecost under heaven, verse 6, and at this, this sound, uh, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? And then, then Luke lists some of the, the 
countries that were there, skip to verse 11, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues or language all the mighty works of God. I mean, Peter's speaking in all these different languages. They're hearing what he's saying. And all were amazed and perplexed and saying to each other, what does this mean? Well, what does this mean? What's the significance of this? Listen, the first time the gospel is proclaimed by the church, it did not go out in Hebrew. It went out in every language. It was a miraculous sign to tell the church that the gospel is for the nations. The church is to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now turn to Revelations 5. This is the end of the ages. Revelations 5. The land comes who was slain, Jesus. He's the only one that can open the seals. And the saints, who are distressed because no one could open them, start singing. And this is what they say. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You know what word language is in Greek? Glosis. It's the same word in Acts 2, tongues. Every tongue will worship Jesus. Your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and tongue and, and people and nation, ethne. Tongues in Acts 2 is a sign that reaching the nation is a priority to God. Revelation shows that God will accomplish that task. And there's places throughout Revelations that talk about every nation, tribe, and language. I love Revelation 7, 9 through 10. Revelation 7, 9 through 10, which says, And after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in, in white wolves, robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Let me just end with this this morning. The task of the church in regards to missions is not merely to win as many individual souls as possible. We're called to evangelize our, 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 our culture. Right? We're called to do that. We're called to make disciples. And we're starting up a class. We're, we're focusing on that. We want to be a church that makes disciples from Tehachapi. But the call of missions is to win individuals from all nations, people groups of the world. And it's, this is our commission until the end of the age. But what does the end of the age look like? And why does this glorify God? This is the question you ask. Why does this glorify God? Isaiah 19 is, has this weird passage in it. It's passage is verse 16 through 25. It's interesting. Because throughout Isaiah, there's this, this uh, um, prophecy against Egypt and Assyria. 
But if you just look at the heading of chapter um, 19, verse 16, it says, Egypt, Assyria, and Israel blessed. We're going to think about this. Egypt and Assyria, in the large story of Scripture, are two of the most evil nations, at least when it comes to Israel. They're bitter enemies of Israel. Uh, Both countries have enslaved Israel at points in their history. Not only that, in this time period, Assyria and, and Egypt are fighting against each other. They hated each other. And Isaiah says in, in Isaiah 19, starting in verse 23, in that day, this is the end, in the end of the ages, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come to Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the middle of the earth who the Lord of hosts had blessed, saying, listen to this, blessed be Egypt, my people. That's, that's the title for Israel. And Assyria, the works of my hands. That's another title for Israel. And Israel, my inheritance. Doesn't that make God look glorious? One day, these three countries that hated each other will come together and, and, and the worship of God will transcend all their differences. The coming together of nations and worship of God, putting aside their hatred, glorifies God, and God is all about his glory. Sin, sin came into this world and brought nothing but wars between nations, but God's glory, the glory of the gospel message, will bring peace. So with that said, let me pray and we'll be done this morning. If you have any questions, please come talk with me this week. Give me a call. Um, I'm on the missions committee. If you have questions about missions, email me. I'd love to respond to you. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray for our missionaries. I thank you for um, every single one of them, Lord, and the work that they're doing. God, we pray that uh, we support them well as country oaks. And I'm not talking financially. They're fully financially support, Lord. But I'm talking more spiritually. We're prayer warriors for them. We we encourage them. We're there for them when they need us, Lord, in any way that, Lord, that, that our church gets creative in how we support them. We do Bible studies that, that, that focus on you reaching the nations. We know through Scripture that that's a priority. God, help, that make, help us make that a priority here. I thank you that the history of Country Oaks has been a priority to reaching the nations, and I pray that continues as we move on in the future. Amen.